Hello and welcome to the Underwater Technology Podcast from SUT, the Society for Underwater Technology. We're an international learning society for marine technology, engineering, science, education and policy. My name's Steve Hall, I'm the SUT CEO and each week we'll bring you an interview with one of our members or supporters working in that broad family of underwater technology-related industries, universities, research organisations, policy developers, educators, divers, archaeologists, robot drivers, offshore energy specialists and many, many more. Podcast 4. This week I'm speaking to Professor Rachel Mills, one of the few fortunate human beings who's dived deep into the abyss on deep diving submersibles, pushing the limits of what underwater technology has achieved, and she's a long-standing supporter of SUT as well. Hello everybody, welcome to the Underwater Technology Podcast from the Society for Underwater Technology. My guest this week is Professor Rachel Mills, who's Dean of the Faculty of Environmental and Life Sciences at the University of Southampton. Great. Well, thank you for having me on this lovely sunny May day. So I'm sitting here in Southampton um, in my home, as we all are, in the sixth week of lockdown. And I'm based halfway between the Oceanography Centre and the University in Southampton. So I sort of sit in a couple of kilometres from each of those organisations. Um, I've been in Southampton for most of my career. I, I, I studied here as an undergraduate. I was, in fact, I think one of the first, the first graduate of oceanography with chemistry. So this was back in the uh, um, the 1980s. In 1988, I graduated with ocean, from the oceanography department that was at that point based up at the Highfield campus. The oceanography centre didn't exist. It was just reclaimed land down in the docks in those days. I then went and studied for a PhD in Cambridge with um, Harry Elderfield, who unfortunately is with us no longer, but also um, mm-hmm. somebody who worked at the Institute for Oceanographic Sciences, John Thompson, who I still do see quite regularly in Southampton. Um, John was based in, in Wormley and, again, had been for a long time. So I spent quite a lot of my PhD studies in Wormley at IOS and the rest of my time in Cambridge. And that was a great introduction to that sort of IOS culture and history. And it really made me want to be a career oceanographer. Okay, that's brilliant. And I suppose the first time I came across you, Rachel, would have been in the early 90s when the a rather rusty ex-Soviet ship turned up in Southampton Harbour, the uh, the Keldish, our accommodation um, Keldish, carrying a pair of uh, Russian Mir deep diving submersibles. Yeah, and you did remind me that was nearly 27, a long time ago. <laughs> um, so after my PhD, I got a job at Southampton. In those days, you could really walk out of a PhD and get an academic job. I think probably nowadays people have to do two or three postdocs before they get an academic job. So I came back to Southampton in 93 and immediately started writing proposals because we wanted funding to do really cool stuff using submersibles. Um, I knew I wanted to study these deep sea hydrothermal vents that occur on the um, Mid-Atlantic Ridge were the ones we were looking at. And after about a year, we managed to pull together a team and some funding, and we commissioned the Russian Russians to supply the ship and the submersibles, which, again, at that time, I think was an extraordinary thing to do looking back on it. And as you said, they came to Southampton, and they came into Southampton Dock, and we joined the ship. And that was um, probably well, it was my first experience of being chief scientist. That was my first experience of really... Um, organizing and leading on a really big complex international project and I certainly learned a lot from that. 
Okay, and and what was it like working with the Russians? Because at that time, it wasn't that long after the uh, collapse of the old USSR, and from what I remember, they were pretty strapped for cash. They were so strapped for cash that NERG had to pay them in um, used US dollars. I mean, essentially, those are the days when you could go and essentially... (laughs) come and pay cash to commission a ship. And, and I think the people in NERC still talk about this as being extraordinary times, coming down and paying the captain. And the, the, the crew of the ship had been at sea for 10 months and they hadn't seen land. And um, anyone that sailed on a Russian ship will know there's an awful lot of um, drinking and partying that goes on on Russian ships, or certainly was in the 1990s. And, of course, they landed in Southampton to this country where they could get everything, you know, they suddenly had cash and they could get everything they wanted. So I think they felt they'd hit the jackpot. Um, and... A, a, a sort of collection of British scientists and, and a few Americans and other other European scientists joined the ship, including a lot of young scientists. A lot of we, you know, when we go to sea, we take our PhD students with us, even our master students with us. And I think I think that the Russian contingent hadn't seen anything like this before. This sort of like very diverse, lots of lots of girls, lots of lots of young scientists with lots of enthusiasm joining this rather sort of. Um, archaic Russian outfit that had been at sea for 10 months. So you can imagine it's quite a mixture of, of um, um, quite a mixed culture on board, let's say that. Mm. And, and what was it like to to dive deep in, in the mere submersibles? Well, I'd already had them... Um, um, the luck, if you like, to be on the Alvin Alvin submersible um, the previous year. So I dived um, with Alvin out of Woods Hole on the same sites, mm-hmm. actually. So I could directly compare that sort of U.S. Um, operation um, using Alvin off the Atlantis II, as it was in those days, with this rather rather different um, operation um, on, on the Russian ship. Obviously, the Russian ship had two submersibles, the identical Mir-1 and Mir-2, which led for some real, really good opportunities for sort of um, videoing underwater between the two submersibles. So we actually had a film crew on board as well, just up the ante. So we had a Channel 4 documentary that was made at the time um, with a full sort of producer, director, sound and cameraman on board, capturing every moment of everything we did, which those of you that have been to see will know that adds another level of sort of um, complication and maybe stress at times when someone is desperate to get that sort of film shot and says, can you just do that again? And you say, really? And it's it's the same ship and submersibles that that Cameron used for... Titanic, isn't Absolutely. it, for, for, for any of our listeners who are not familiar with what she looks like? Yeah. And in fact, one of the pilots that I dived with on the Mir appeared you know, in, in, in that Titanic film. And it was great to watch that and go, I know that man. <laughs> That's great. Um, they're very, ta- very talented. And the, and the Russian, Russian scientists and crew and engineers are, are just wonderful people to work with. Um, it was just a very different culture to one that I was experienced of at that time in my life. And I think I, I absolutely um, i am in awe of the people that can go through that sort of as you say, collapse of the USSR, that massive change, that massive shock to their economy and the whole society, and come through smiling and come through with positive attitude and a collaborative, outward-looking um, approach to science. So, no, it was a joy to work with them. Mm. So, so technically, how, how different did you find the Mir to the Alvin? 
Um, well, let's, let's start with the ship, and the ship was an absolute rust bucket. <laughs> so um, <laughs> I remember when they came into Southampton, uh, the, the Port Authority immediately said, you know, you're not, you don't, you're not compliant with any of our regulations. Right, they, they arrested her, didn't they? Yeah, until yeah, yeah, they, yeah. <laughs> so there was an they, issue around, um, even then, back, remember this was the 1990s, they're not nearly as strict as now, so they were not really compliant with anything. Their health and safety was n- non-existent, so the crew would operate the winches and their flip-flops and their speedos with no... No, no PPE to be seen anywhere. There's an awful lot of drinking. I can say all these things now because it's 1990s and I'm not, put, I'm not dropping anyone in it, but it was extraordinary. Um, the sort of, I guess, but I guess that's what happens to societies when they've gone through what the Russians have gone through, that perhaps their priority for sort of like the health and safety of, the, of their workforce wasn't a priority. Um, mm. But as a sort of chief scientist and as a supervisor of these PhD students that I'd taken on board with me, I was constantly in slight level of anxiety around sort of these young people. And um, so we had to to sort of overlay a lot of governance and a lot of um, risk assessment process. And they they probably thought we were dreadful bureaucrats and dreadful fusspots, but we had to do that to make sure our people were safe. Mm. Yes, yes. And, and, and how deep were you able to dive? So the Mears can do 6,500 uh, kilometres, sorry, metres, 6,500 metres. And in fact, I think some of the, the sort of mere pilots and scientists have done some of the most extraordinary deep work. But obviously, we were working on the Mid-Atlantic Ridge, which is slightly shallower. So that the TAG site, the Transatlantic Geotraverse site, is at something like 3,700 metres. So that was the deep mm. we dived. So we weren't really pushing the depth boundary, but we yeah. certainly pushed the sort of time underwater boundary. And again, uh, having worked with Alvin, who are very strict about sort of bottom times and, and nowhere near battery depletion, it was a real sort of um, eye-opener to see how the, the Russians were quite happy to um, dive for 16, 17 hours underwater, by which time, you know, the batteries are completely depleted. And, in fact, yeah. one dive I was on, and, and, and I guess I hadn't really realised how unsafe this was. And you only really realise this looking back, but we drained the batteries completely. We had no power on the return. We had no, we had, had no light. We couldn't control the buoyancy. We had to um, do a manual... Um, 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 change of the lithium cartridges um, to extract the CO2. The CO2 levels were getting up to well over sort of one and a half percent. We all had massive headaches, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. You know, looking back, that was bonkers. But at the time, I guess it was <laughs> so exciting, and I was young, and I was sort of, I guess you believe that you're gonna, nothing's gonna, you know, you're invincible when you're that age. Yes, yes. But I do remember when I stepped onto the deck, Harry Elderfield, my PhD supervisor, just came and gave me this massive hug, and just said, "I was so worried we'd sort of lost you," and I suddenly realised that actually, of course, you know, everyone else is on the deck. And they know the risks and they know that sort of, and 16 hours is a long, long time. Yeah, yeah. And for some, I mean, most of us have never been on that kind of vehicle. I mean, what what's it like? Is, is it quiet? Is it noisy? Are you hearing the thing creaking and groaning as it's going down deep into the high pressure? And, you know, is it, a, is it scary, I suppose? Yeah. yeah, yeah, all of that. So, I mean, I'm, I am slightly claustrophobic, it turns out. Um, but I guess I, I sort of also am an adrenaline junkie. So the adrenaline overlays the terror, the fear of, of the hatch being closed. Um, but it is that sort of 
Um, I guess my, it, we, we didn't have Fitbits in those days, but I bet you if we did have a Fitbit, my heart would have been racing as, you, as you're oh, yeah. aside and you're bouncing around on the surface of the ocean. So the sort of entry to the water and that sort of tossing and turning that happens in the swell in the Atlantic is pretty unpleasant. And, you know, people do throw up. It's unpleasant. If you get seasick, it's really not, you know, if you're on the surface for a long time in a small ball that's rolling around. So Ooh. you're desperate to get down into the stillness of the deep ocean as quickly as possible because that top bit is often also very hot because these things are so, no thermal insulation. So you're in sort of 26 degrees north. It's very warm. It might be 30 degrees in the air temperature. Um, so you start off hot and sweaty and being tossed around and you know crammed into this um, small diameter sphere with two Russian pilots. That, um, I, I don't speak Russian. They've they've never had actually. I don't think they'd ever had a woman scientist in there with them before. They they think I'm very strange. I think they're very strange. We can't really communicate. <laughs> you can imagine it's all a bit stressful. Um, but as soon as you get away from the surface and you get into the pitch black, which happens very quickly. And it is silent, and it's just extraordinary. That sort of, I don't know whether, Steve, you've swum in the deep ocean. It's just that feeling of sort of there is kilometres of water beneath you, mm. and there's yes. vast oceans around you, and all there is between you and that is a thin titanium hull, and it gets very cold. So you go from being really hot and sweaty to being really, really cold, and luckily you, can, you bring all the, you know, you pile on your hat and your gloves and your blanket and and again it's that's i was surprised how cold it was and of course it is you know that you know that it's 2.7 degrees celsius in the deep ocean but of course when you're sitting there in a small sphere for hours you do get cold and so it does take you to extremes um and then of course i've mentioned carbon dioxide already you know you're pumping out co2 and turns out the russians were complaining that you ladies, you pump had a lot of CO2, and I think it was just because I was panicking. <laughs> you know, it's like they were sort of they were amazed at how much carbon dioxide I produced. <laughs> and, um, uh, yeah, it's sort of interesting, but definitely pushing pushing the boundaries of your physiological response and say, comfort, let's say. Uh, mm. And was there much bioluminescence uh, when you're on the way down, or is that only if you, you know, uh, is that a rare thing, or is it there all the time? I think it's there all the time, but to be honest, I wasn't really, um, I mean, you, I certainly saw bioluminescent organisms as I went down, but they had this fantastic Russian um, sort of uh, Russian biologist on a, a, chap, a chap called Professor Vinogradov, who's a very famous Russian biologist who was in his 80s at this time. And the way the Russians used to, um, if you like, man their submersibles, was that they would lower the 84-year-old Professor Vinogradov into the submersible with the youngish pilots. And he would look out of the porthole and count the bioluminescent plankton. And he would count them, you know, as he went down. It was extraordinary. And he was, again, a fantastic gentleman. Didn't speak a word of English. And we could communicate mainly by sign language. But, um, you know, the, the, to see scientists of that sort of status and age operating on a ship was just extraordinary. Because, um, again, you know, in Britain, we, we don't do that. You know, we, the, the seagoing science community tends to be the younger scientists. And uh, we don't take our 84-year-olds to see. No, no. So, so how did your career move on after, the, after the, this period di- diving in the submersibles? So I 
90s was I spent quite a lot of time at sea, um, probably at least two um, sort of operations a, a, a year, so it might be six weeks at a time at sea. And um, that was great. It was all very exciting, quite a lot of interest from the media. So we did some sort of um, documentaries. I mentioned the one on Channel 4. We also did Earth Story, um, which, again, was really exciting stuff, using Alvin to look at mid-ocean ridges. And then um, got to the late 90s and I had a family. So that was a sort of real step change. Um, so 1999, my first son was born. 2001, my second son was born. I didn't go to sea for quite a long time. And I really moved my, my career, moved to supervising PhD students and giving them the opportunities. So my, my PhD students of that time went all over the world. They 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 got the most amazing opportunities because I was at home dealing with my family, sending them off on my behalf to do really cool things. And then late, lately, sort of when we, when they were old enough to be left, <laughs> left with their father and left going to school and things, um, I started going back to sea, but I still haven't been nearly as much. So it's made, maybe every two or three years I get out there. And so I've been doing different things. Um, but it's sort of really interesting coming back and the technology's changed completely. Um, obviously, in Britain, we now have the remotely operated vehicle ISIS that we operate out of the NOC. And I've, so I've been, I have moved on from human-occupied vehicles to using ROVs. And that's in completely different way of working. Lots, lots more sort of, lot more collaborative, a um, lot more sort of collective decision-making you know, in the van on the, on board the ship, a group of people making sort of collective decisions about priorities, and collectively um, designing and implementing the, the the dive program, and that's probably more efficient and effective, but it isn't nearly as exciting. <laughs> and have you worked with totally autonomous systems as well, Rachel, or or, or always with the tethered? ROVs. So we often use um, Autosub to uh, do the sort of like the far field sort of sniffing out the likely area before we deploy the ROV. So what we're really interested in is exploring for pinpointing and then sampling hydrothermal vents. So the AUV work will often be done on a, on, on a trip prior to the one I'm on. So it's part of the same program, but the AUV will have done sort of like the, the sort of lawnmower type sort of sniffing out using the sensors mounted onto the AUV hull to say this is where the likely vent site is because we can see that the either the pH or the EH or the particles or some sort of chemical sensor a signal is um, elevated um, at this point um, you know, 100 metres above the seafloor. Then we'd go back with the ship a second time and start um, doing the sort of what, the near field ROV deployment, and that's where I come in really. So I haven't, I haven't personally um, deployed AUVs, but we're absolutely dependent on that as part of the overall um, discovery program of what we're looking at. Okay, and are there new generations of sensors becoming available that let you do things you couldn't do in the past? Absolutely. So, I, I think one of the things that really struck me, and maybe it's the age I've got to, is you sort of you look back and say, "I was at sea in the '90s, and it took a year, or maybe it took three or four expeditions to generate this amount of data." And now we can do that in two weeks. You know, now we can actually go out there, take map the seafloor topography, process it on board, um, do the AUV survey, pinpoint the likely vent site, dive, have the chemical sensors that will measure, you know, the methane, the pH, the particles, the the EH, the 
and even we're now starting to get good sensors for various types of um, reduced species around the vent sites. It's extraordinary how things have moved in my career, and they're moving at pace still. You know, so the future I think is clearly going to be lots more sort of um, sort of deployment of AUVs with appropriately mounted um, sensors in a whole array of these things that can provide us with a holistic snapshot of what's going on rather than this rather piecemeal I've made an observation here I came back three years later I made the same observation I came back five years later made you know the piecing it together over interannual variability makes it very difficult to interpret some of these things so we can see the direction of travel and I think before I retire Maybe we won't even be needing to be on ships, heaven forbid. Maybe we can actually do remote deployment, have the data sent to us. I, I can sit in my <laughs> front room in Southampton, halfway between the Oceanography Centre and the University, and have it all streamed to me. Yes, I know. And, and certainly one of the possibilities that does offer us is using these technologies to explore oceans and other worlds yeah. as well. You know, and I, I was speaking to an engineer who was involved in the work on at some point in the future visiting jupiter's moon europa or uh, saturn's moon titan and exploring the oceans there and it, wouldn't it be fantastic if we're, we're we're still working when these things happen oh i know i just and what i love about our subject steve is the fact that you know there's so much that we don't know it's so much yet to explore and we talk about exploration and exploration itself has evolved it's gone from you know, the Victorian concept of exploration, of sticking a flag in it and making it British, through to this search for understanding and understanding processes and understanding the interaction of the different parts of the system. And I, I love that sort of the way that our exploration has really moved to a sort of transnational, and now you say even transplanetary, um, um, wish to have understanding of how our universe works. Yeah, it's brilliant. And you've been a good friend of SUT over the years, Rachel. You've you've spoken at our Christmas lectures, and uh, you know I think we we probably sponsored some of the students you've had as, as well. And you know, what would you say to any you know young people listening to this 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 interview who might be thinking, do you know, do I want to work in ocean science? You know, is this uh, or, and particularly to you know young females who might be thinking, you know, is is this a career for me? You know, what what, what would you say? What are your your words of encouragement for the next generation? Well, I think first and foremost, I would also say it's not, the, the the diversity issue is certainly not just male female. That is all of the characteristics. So, if you look at oceanography as a subject, it is shockingly white. You know, so mm-hmm. while we've improved our um, female participation hugely during and i guess my generation was perhaps at the front end of that people like harry elderfield who's my PhD supervisor brought a huge number of women through his his lab who are now working in science but what we haven't what we've absolutely failed to do is to actually bring the bame bame community with us and that's our challenge absolutely have to address this and we probably have to use the same techniques where Harry was a champion for women, whether he knew it or not, he was a champion for women because he took women on and because he gave them opportunity and he championed them and put them out there. We have to do the same for all of the diversity characteristics that we need to um, equalise across our society. So that's the first thing I would say, is oceanography is for everybody. And just because there isn't someone that looks like you in, in on the ship or in the classroom in the university 
please don't be put off by that. Um, we're, we are a community that has a very used to change. I think we're a community that has transformed itself over the last 20 years as we've gone to sort of autonomous systems and we're going to transform ourselves again as we bring in much more technology from engineering and from different, um, maybe even medicine. Um, we need to transform the shape and, and, and diversity of the people that participate so I'm a, I'm a, as you can tell, I'm really passionate about this. Um, we've got a lot of work to do. So please come and join us is what I'd say. Indeed. And, and I guess, you know, as we're about to embark on the UN Decade of Ocean Science for Sustainable Development, as part of the Sustainable Development Goals, you know, th- things like, you know, in, increasing inclusion and ensuring there's knowledge transfer, knowledge exchange, into developing countries is a very important part of that for, for our community, isn't it? Well, I think, that, that again, uh, you know, our legacy is the Challenger Expedition, which we're, we're coming up to the 150th anniversary of in 2022. The Challenger Expedition was a fantastic thing, but it was a very Victorian exploration, sticking your flag in things type approach to exploration. And the Challenger visited all sorts of developing countries and took away a lot of um, knowledge that they didn't share with the developing countries and the native communities that they interacted with. And we've got to sort of equalise that now. It's our duty now, I think, as 21st century scientists to actually share knowledge properly um, across nations, share the understanding, share the assets that we know are in the ocean equitably and actually address... um, you know, the knowledge that comes out of these communities and, and treat it with the respect and authority that it has. So, I'm, I'm again, something else we need to really think about is that proper collaborative working with all nations, not imposing our rather colonial approach to um, science and discovery that, you know, we know right and, and we're going to impose it on other people. I think we have to listen and we have to collaborate and we have to think about the diversity of the, of the peoples of this planet. Brilliant. Um before we finish, anyone who wants to find out more about your work or get in contact, where, where, where should they where should they look? Well, I'm pretty active on Twitter. That's how you found me recently. So um, you can either direct message me on Twitter as Rachel Ann Mills. That's one word, um, or maybe from other people you want to email me. So again, it's Rachel dot Mills at Southampton So, but. Either of those work really well. We're obviously through the SUT or through the Challenger Society as well. So I'm a past president of the Challenger Society. And again, the Challenger Society webpage has all sorts of information and you can link to me through that. Brilliant. Thanks very much, Rachel. It's been great speaking to you again. And uh, we look forward to catching up again uh, before too long when we're allowed out of lockdown. Yes, thank you for having me. And it's been a real delight just to chat on a Friday afternoon. Indeed. Thanks, Rachel. Bye for now. Bye-bye. I enjoyed that. Listening to Rachel is always inspiring. She's done things others only dream about and helped push the boundaries of human knowledge. Her point about ensuring that equal opportunity isn't only about gender, but about enabling people from underrepresented ethnic and cultural groups to be active and welcome in ocean science, technology and engineering, must be taken seriously in our community. And as a learning society and supporter of the UN Decade of Ocean Science for Sustainable Development, we'll do what we can to help try and make a difference. Keep tuning in to the Underwater Technology Podcast to listen to other guests with fascinating stories to tell. 
Don't forget to subscribe, rate and review so that we can grow our listenership. Thank you to Emily Body for composing our podcast music and creating the podcast artwork. Find out more about SUT at sut.org. Contact me at steve.hall at sut.org. More from us soon. Goodbye.